Well, I shared with you last week, we're kind of in a series where we're talking about how God is at work with us in our everyday lives. Um, I also shared with you last week uh, that for my wife and my family and I, this 2016 has not started the best. Some years don't start well. This one has not. (laughs) Okay, enough of that. Anyways, uh, not started well. So maybe your year has not started well. You need God to do something in your life. I want to give you a couple of prayers that were given to me at the start of this year and have made a tremendous difference. The first prayer that was given to me was, why don't you wait and see what God will do? When you're wanting to control, which a lot of us struggle with, you're wanting to manipulate, you're wanting to steer things the way you want it to go, the prayer comes to you, why don't you wait and see what God can do? Now, the next prayer goes with it, because just about the time you think it's a magic trick, where you're thinking, oh, I get it, I I say, oh, I'll wait and see what God will do, and then he'll do exactly what I want. Just about the time you think it's a magic trick, then you pray the second prayer. You may not get what you want on this one. You have to be able to pray that in honesty. You may not be able to get what you want with this one. And just about the time that tears you apart, you pray, why don't you wait and see what God will do? You see how this seesaw is going to carry you through the next week? You may not get what you want on this one. Why don't you wait and see what God will do? It's a way of releasing control to God. Here's what we usually mean by that. God, I give this problem to you. Now, here's what I need you to do. I mean, before I step out of here, could you, I need you to do this and this and this. Okay, and now, now God, I I leave it to you. Oh, wait, there's one more thing. I need, don't forget, that's not releasing control. So you pray this back and forth. I'm only sharing with you what was shared with me. And it made a big difference. So I want to share that with you. So let us stand together. And throughout this worship, I imagine the Holy Spirit will use some line of one of these songs to give you an opportunity to pray, why don't you wait and see what God can do? And prepare yourself. You may not get what you want on this one. And back and forth. So let us pray and then we'll continue in song. Father, teach us how what it really means to let go. Teach us what it really means to trust you. Teach us what it really means to turn the outcome over to you. Lord, I pray during these songs and the energy they create and the excitement that they create, uh, Lord, that you'll meet us in our life, whether it's filled with joy or filled with pain right now, and teach us a lesson we all need that to believe in you means to trust in you. It means to release control to you and surrender to you. Father, we want to have the strength to wait and see what you will do and to let go of the outcome and admit it may not be exactly what we want. Find us between these two prayers, God. Find us today. We need you desperately. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We praise God this morning for all the things that he does. We have been studying the book of Acts. We're going to keep doing that for a while. We're going to pick up now right where we left off last week. Now we have Saul of Tarsus. Saul is riding on a horse to Damascus. He's got two tough guys with him. Saul is on a mission. He is no longer content with just stamping out Christians in Jerusalem. 
Now this uh, Pharisee wants to find Christians wherever they are and eradicate them completely before they spread any further. He's got saddlebags full of rattling chains as he rides down the road. And he has an order stuck in his tunic that he has permission from the high priest to put those chains on anyone he can find who calls on the name Jesus, drag them back to Jerusalem, and put them through trial. He's halfway to Damascus. His horse snorts and rears. There's a bright flash. Is it lightning or light? We don't know. Verse 4. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes... He was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. And as terrifying as this whole event was, I'll bet there's someone in the room this morning saying, I wish that would happen to me. I wish that would happen to me so that I could know that I know without any doubt. I wish that would happen to me so I could believe. Someone in the room this morning is saying, I wish that would happen to my son. I wish that would happen to my daughter. I wish that would happen to my mom or my dad or my husband or my wife. So they could be saved from the mess they're in. So they could believe and trust in God. This morning's message is called Conversion Envy. When we, when we envy the conversion experience and the events that someone else got to experience. And we didn't. I don't uh, tell the details of the story of my own conversion very often because... Uh, it embarrasses me, frankly. And, and given the embarrassing stuff that I do tell you, you ought to imagine what this is going to be. But, uh, but today, we're going to do it. So in college, I came to a crossroads in my life. My family was Christian. They had tried to bring me up in that. I was very attracted to it. A part of me was very attracted to that. My dad did a good job of, of making that look good. Another part of me wanted to go off and live a life of promiscuity, of inappropriate relationships, outside of marriage, everything that is the opposite of these scriptures. And when I got to college, it wasn't just a game anymore. Both of these options were now fully open to me. But somehow I knew I could only really choose one. So one day I was in my parents' living room. I can still picture exactly how it was laid out that year. Sofa facing west. I was laying on the sofa. I was looking through the Bible for Bible verses. I was searching for loopholes. And then I heard a voice. 
It wasn't like Saul's voice. It, it was just in my head. I, I, if anyone else was in the room, they, they wouldn't have heard it. The voice felt alien to me, uh, not like a thought that was coming out of me, but more like something from the outside coming in. And it came in, in distinct words, not like thoughts normally come, where it's an idea that you then you put words to. This came as a distinct stream of distinct words. And the words were, why don't you deny God and get on with it? And I froze in fear in the living room. To this day, I believe I had contact with something outside this dimension of reality, and it was not good. This was not an intellectual exercise anymore. There was something spiritual and spiritually real at stake here. Now, I still had a lot of journey to go from that day to finding the cross of Jesus Christ, but I believe that is the day it got serious. This story embarrasses me because I know how easy it would be to to scoff at that story and say... You were young. You said you were at some sort of moral crossroads. You're emotionally distressed. It would be very easy to imagine an experience like that. And I have to admit that that is true. It doesn't seem imagined to me even to this day, but I have to admit that's a possibility. The story also embarrasses me because... uh, especially in a week like this where I'm actually working with people who are are losing their faith or unsure of their faith and are saying things like, well, I've just never experienced anything to make me think there was a God. I wonder, why did I have this experience? And they didn't. I'll say many times that I have doubted my faith from time to time, and but I always go back to that day. I remember that day, and I remember what it felt like and what happened. So why can't everyone have a Damascus Road conversion experience? That's our question. It's actually got several good answers for it. Uh, the first answer to why doesn't everyone have a miraculous Damascus Road experience is uh, the easiest, and that is that not everyone needs a Damascus Road conversion. We aren't all God-haters like Saul, running around persecuting people. We aren't even all, like me, anxious to run out and do something really sinful. Some of you rather liked the Christian life and Christian ways of living before you became a Christian yourself. Others of you just don't question things as vigorously as other people do. You're not someone who needs to poke and prod at every question. You don't need to see every question disassembled on a table and examine all the parts and put it back together for yourself. You just don't think that way. For many of you to know that that the love of Christ and to see evidence all around you in creation of what God has done is enough. And there are scriptures that back you up that say that should be enough. To see all that God has done in the natural world and to know the love of Christ should be enough. So you're fine. You don't need a flash of lightning and three days of blindness. Why doesn't everyone get a Damascus Road conversion? There's a second answer to that question. 
but it's going to be harder to hear. And that is that miraculous conversions don't make as much difference as you might think they would. I know we're thinking, if I was knocked off a horse and blind for three days, I would believe. And maybe you would, but also maybe you wouldn't. Think about the things you've seen in your own life already. I know several people like this. I bet you do too. How many people do you know who are doing something, you know, maybe like drunk driving or something, and they got into a car wreck, and they emerge with, basically without a scratch, from a twisted, mangled, serrated mass of steel. Every officer on the scene said, you should have been dead. I'd already called the ambulance. Every paramedic said, you should have been dead. I never called anybody out like that. The person themselves says, I should have been dead. And what do they say? There must be some reason God did this miracle to save me. And they're right. So what do they do next? They spend the next several weeks searching for what is this purpose, this reason for which I lived. And then some of them, after just a few weeks, go right back to the person they were before. Some of them did die. They were resuscitated they still managed to go back to who they were before. Some of them went back to drunk driving again, didn't they? A miraculous conversion doesn't make as much difference as you might think. I have my own story about that. Not long after I became a follower of Jesus, I was uh, out on the deck and I fell asleep in a lawn chair. And uh, we lived in a neighborhood, but it was surrounded by farmland. So I'm out on the deck, surrounded by farmland there. And uh, I had a dream, I suppose. It was a dream, although it had no visual elements. It was more like I was asleep and someone was standing next to me, talking to me. And they said, Garrett, wake up. And I stirred a little bit. And then the voice said, Garrett, wake up now. And I opened my eyes. And there was a hawk coming down on my face. <laughs> Hawks hunt, but they also pick off of dead carcasses. They'll circle it for a while, but if it doesn't move, then they go down and they tear off a piece. <laughs> it was so close, I could see its talons opening. And I threw up my arms to shield my face, and then he was like, it's alive! Which in hawk sounds like, <laughs> and it made, that, it made that freaky hawk noise. And it turned so hard that it lost two feathers negotiating the steer to not land on my face. <laughs> now, I have told several people that story through the years, but usually in this context, context, somebody will tell me like that they have like a, you know, teacup poodle, toy chihuahua, one of these, you know, bug-eyed rat dogs. And... <laughs> And people who have these dogs usually have a story that like a hawk or an eagle or an owl came down and took it away or tried to take it away, right? And so when people tell these stories many times over the last 20 years, I have told my story about when the, the hawk came down to, to eat me. But because we're talking about, you know, bug-eyed rat dogs named Yipper and Skipper and things like that, um, I don't tell the part about I had a dream and God woke me up. That's just too heavy of a story to drop in at that point in the conversation, right? You don't, you don't do that sort of thing. My chihuahua got taken. God saved me from a hawk. You know. <laughs> so I, 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 I tell the hawk story, but I have left off the dream part. 
I left off the dream part so many times, I forgot it happened. This is, this, is, this is the truth. My dad was just in my office three weeks ago. We were talking about miracles. He said, remember that time you had the dream that woke you up? I looked, I, what are you talking about? He says, with the hawk. And I looked at him like I didn't know what he was talking about. I had told him about it that day, of course. It disturbed me for a week. Took me a whole week of thinking about how many times I told the story and, and why I had omitted that part. And after telling it so many times with that part left out, I forgot it. How can you forget something God did? It's because miracles actually don't make as much difference as you think they do. Why doesn't everyone have a Damascus Road conversion? Another answer is that just isn't the type of God that our God is. He's not about impressing us with miracles. This miracle for Saul was not about getting Saul's attention, some stubborn Pharisee. It was as much as it was about announcing that God is about to do something new in history. C.S. Lewis, I read his uh, book on miracles in a book club this year. And he said, really, if you look at it, God didn't do that many wildly impressive and public miracles in the Bible. Now, I know what you're thinking. I've read the Bible. The thing's full of wildly impressive and public miracles. If you take out the stuff that happened during about a year when they were leaving Egypt, and you take out about three years of Jesus' ministry, and you scatter the rest of them over the 3,000 years the Bible covers, they get very far apart. And most of those are not witnessed by more than a couple people. And every one of them is at a point when God is announcing that he's about to do something radically new in the history of salvation. So if you and I aren't present at the time and the place where that happens, you and I may hear a voice or receive a miraculous check or even be healed of an illness, but unless we're at one of those points in history, at the geographical location where God is breaking in, you and I may never see a blinding flash of lightning or a voice from the sky or a parted sea. I've never seen anything of that magnitude. The truth is that God gives us the conversion that we're going to need for the calling that he's going to put on our lives. As for my own story, my personality being what it is, I don't know if I would have had the strength to leave teaching and enter ministry without that strange voice back early in my story. And about a dozen other little episodes like it along the way. For some of you, you're in middle school or you're in high school and God is bringing you through something terrible right now. But I'm telling you, someday he will be able to use your story to minister to others who are going through the same thing you're going through. Others of you, you have grown up in faith since you were little. And you have never really turned away from it. Your story bears a valuable message too. That not everyone comes to Christ by crawling through a pit of slime and sin. So churches like Lakeland... The, passionate about reaching the lost, uh, we sometimes accidentally communicate 
that if you don't have a dramatic conversion story from sinner to saint, then you're probably not a real Christian. We don't mean to say that, but accidentally that gets communicated. But your story says that's not always how it is. Your story comforts people who came to Christ without wearing out the wings on their guardian angel. It says you can still be a real Christian. Your story comforts us parents to say our kids may wander, but they may not. Some of you were horribly hurt by the church. I think we heard that in Kelly's story. Some of you are horribly hurt by the church, and yet you follow Christ Jesus. Your story tells us something that you know well, and we all need to know, that it's Christ we follow here. It's not the church. It's not church leaders. It's Jesus Christ. The people in church, we're variously good and bad at this at different times, but God is always faithful. Some of you this morning are sick and God has not and may not heal you. Your story reminds us that we come to Christ with a sacred vow, like a wedding vow, that says, I will be faithful in sickness and in health, good and bad. Some of your stories loudly proclaim a God of second chances and third chances, and fourth chances. Some of your stories tell us that sin is a carefully packaged trap that never delivers what it promises, no matter how many times you open it. Some of your stories say that you can take your faith lightly for a while and coast through it, but that will always come back to bite you. Because this is not a game. You can't do it halfway. You will finally have to say yes to Christ in all his ways or else deny God and get on with it. Some of your conversions were, were delayed until very late in life. And you say this kind of stuff to me all the time. Oh, I wish I'd known all this in my 20s. It would have wasted so much time. I, you know, could have saved everybody around me and myself a lot of pain. But you know, your story is actually uh, very encouraging to the rest of us. Because your story reminds us it's never too late with God. I just baptized an 81-year-old man after Christmas. And we're going to bury him tomorrow. Some of the last words I heard him say were from Saul. He said, I have fought the good fight. So, see, if everyone came to Christ in their teens and 20s, then after our loved ones got to be 30 or 40, we'd stop praying for them because they're too old, too late. Your story reminds us it's never too late. It's never too late with God. So I know last week, Several of you gave your lives to Christ. So I got to pray with you. Here you are this week. Oh, man. I remember what this is like. First week as a Christian. And you come back like, what's God got for me next? What's my next step? Okay. I'm going to give you a next step every week of this series. You keep coming back. Here it is this week. Write your story down. If, you're, if you like to write, you make it three pages. If you, that's not your bag, you can do 
three paragraphs. So first page or first paragraph, what was your life before? What were you into? What was your head like? What was happening? Second page or second paragraph, how did you come to know Christ was your Lord and your Savior? How did Jesus become real to you? What series of events led to that switch in your mind? Third page or third paragraph, what do you think he's doing right now? What do you think the next stage of your journey is? Where do you think this is all headed? What is something he's wanting you to change right now? You can feel him. He's always got something for all of us. A new thing to try, something to turn loose of. What is it? Okay, that's your next step. Get your story down while it's still fresh in your mind before you forget the miracle by not telling it. Next week, we'll have another one. So now we're going to watch as Saul of Tarsus gets the conversion he's going to need for the calling he's going to have. Verse 10. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. First thing I love about this is that Ananias is having a vision that someone else is having a vision about Ananias having a vision. There's like a vision feedback loop here going on, but, but God can handle it. But all Ananias hears is the words, Saul of Tarsus, and he freaks out. Verse 13. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talking about terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem. He's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And here is why Damascus Road is a miracle. Because God is about to launch something new into faith history. This is one of those moments. The Bishop N.T. Wright described it best, so I'll use his words. He says, The time has come for the message about the one true God, the Jewish good news of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be told to the wider world, the world of pagans, Gentiles, people who know nothing and care less about this God. And the person to do this task, to spearhead the work of getting the message to those outside the law, must be the one who most clearly of all his generation had been the most keen to stamp that message out. Nobody must ever be able to say that people took the message to the Gentiles because they weren't bothered about Israel and its traditions or because they didn't understand how important the law itself really was. No, when you want to reach the pagan world, the person to do it will be a hard-lined, fanatical, ultra-nationalist, upper-orthodox, Pharisaic Jew. And they say God doesn't have a sense of humor. And there's one more reason why Saul got this conversion. Verse 16 And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. 
I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Saul is going to need this story to fall back on when he's beaten with rods and whips, when he's hunted by assassins. Saul is going to need this story to remember when he's floating for days in a stormy sea and he's rotting in a Roman prison. And he's going to need this story when he lays his neck down on a chopping block on a lonely road outside Rome, proclaiming, I have fought the good fight. The conversion he needs for the calling he has. The story ends this way. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus a few days And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. How long have you been holding back? Have you been waiting for some sort of miraculous conversion so that you know that you know that you know? Because I want to challenge you to think about that a little differently. What if you have seen enough? What if God has already been reaching out to you in a multitude of ways? Think through your life. What has happened up to this point? What brought you here today? Is it enough to step out in faith with Him? Okay, so these words speak to the power of God, and they speak to what God did in this history. He took the message of Jesus Christ and let it spread all around the world to us. Amen? Let's proclaim it again. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to Him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.